I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. And I'm going to be reading from Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. You can find it in your thing. (laughs) Or it'll be up on the screen here too. So let's listen to the story of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they had lived there, after they had lived there, about ten years, both Malin and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness if you have showed kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them a goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The summer... We have been looking at how God uses ordinary and sometimes even less than ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. 
people like Joshua, Nehemiah, Peter, Rahab. These are just plain old people like you and me. Yet God chose them for amazing, even heroic acts of service. Well, today we're going to look at another one of these amazing stories, a story of Ruth. Like the other characters we've studied this summer, Ruth is not someone who would be considered blockbuster or hero material. As a kid, I loved to read stories about unlikely heroes, ordinary people, even less than average people who were swept up in these epic stories where their small lives made a big difference. When I was in sixth grade, I received as a Christmas gift a book that is still one of my favorites today. It's called The Hobbit. J.R.R. Tolkien's book was about unlikely and unwilling heroes, and it captured my imagination. I gobbled it up one weekend and was delighted to discover that Tolkien had written more, a whole series called The Lord of the Rings. So I immediately ordered the trilogy for 50 cents a book. And then I discovered C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. And I love the idea that being small didn't disqualify you from being part of something big and, and meaningful and heroic. These characters didn't possess superpowers. They couldn't fly or turn invisible or, or stop speeding bullets. Well, I like those stories too. Who wouldn't want to have that kind of power and strength? But real life doesn't give us that option, does it? Real life is made up of, of simple, ordinary folks whose strength comes from, from virtue and humility and whose power is found in, in faith and love. Ruth possesses no extraordinary physical strength. She doesn't have x-ray vision. She doesn't wear a cape. She's a very, very ordinary person. But God chooses her for extraordinary purposes. And she becomes a hero in the kingdom of God. The book of Ruth is only four chapters long. So I want to encourage you sometime to read the rest of this beautiful story. Chapter 1, which we just read sets the stage. It begins in actually one of the most dismal ways that we can imagine. And we can quickly see that this ain't no fairy tale. Verse 1 says that this took place in the days when the judges ruled. Now this would have placed the story around like 1400, 1100 B.C. The Bible tells us in Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, it was one of the most evil of times in Israel's history. No rules, no laws. People did whatever they wanted. And then no wonder that in verse 1 it also tells us that there was a famine in the land. Which of course meant no food. I think what verse 1 implies is that this famine 
was sent as a punishment for this evil time. So people began to move around and search for food. And one of them was Elimelech. Now let's all say that name together. Ready? Elimelech. Just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Elimelech. He goes to a place called Moab. Now we aren't even past verse 1 and the story is already full of details and it's thick with irony. For instance, Elimelech was from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem actually means house of bread. The irony here is that there was no more bread in the house of bread. That would be kind of like there would be no pancakes in the house of pancakes. So of all places, where does Elimelech go in search of bread? He goes to Moab. Now for centuries, Moabites and Israelites have been mortal enemies. But when you're hungry, you're not choosy. So we have evil, we have famine, we have desperation. This is not a pretty picture. And it just gets worse. Story goes on to introduce five other characters. Naomi, who is Elimelech's wife. Malon and Killian, their sons. And then Orpah and Ruth, the two sons' wives. Now, for what it's worth, don't ever name your children Malon or Killian. They're terrible names. They literally mean sickly and dying. Now, can you imagine naming your kids this and then having to introduce them to people? These are my two kids, swine flu pandemic and incurable walking pneumonia. That's really pretty much what they meant. Not great names, but then again, they're not in a great situation. In the third verse, we read that Elimelech dies. The Bible doesn't say why or how, but Naomi is suddenly left with her two sons. And eventually they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Now don't forget that Moab, Moabites, are enemies, enemies of the Israelites. I'm not sure how well this fared with their mother, but it's safe to guess that they probably had a few talks about this. But nonetheless, they marry. And then ten years later, Malin and Killian also die. What was a bad situation has just gotten worse. And it's a dark, bleak, hopeless scene for Naomi. Could you imagine what it must have been like living in a foreign land and then losing your husband and your sons? It's bad enough that you're hungry and and you're searching for food in the land of your enemies, but then to lose your family. Like I said, this ain't no fairy tale. So if you're Naomi, your heart would be crying out in pain. If not shouting with clenched fists to the heavens. And you would be demanding, where is God in all of this? Our church family has had a challenging spring and summer. Haven't we? Oh, in the last four months, we've had three funerals here at Orchard Hill. All of them painful and tragic. As well as Ben, Charlie, and Bailey. We've also said goodbye to to Russ Dawson and 
and also to Don Kelly. This past spring, my my wife's niece lost her 39-year-old husband. Such terrible pain and sadness. I mean, I grieve daily, as I'm sure so many of you do too. And so deeply for all of these families. Now, for any of you who have ever faced tragedy, for any of you who have lost someone dear to you, especially someone much too soon, this question, where is God, is all too familiar. And the question is expected. Some will answer, well, there is no God. But others will answer that God can work through even the greatest suffering. There is a rock that we can stand on. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he writes, Ah, the saved. Now what he's talking about here is those who stand on the rock of Jesus. Ah, the saved. What happens to them is best described as the opposite of a mirage. You know what a mirage is when when you imagine seeing an oasis in the desert? He says salvation is the opposite of that. What seemed when they entered it to be the veil of misery turns out when they look back to have been a well. And where present experience saw only salt deserts, memory truthfully records that the pools were full of water. Now what Lewis is saying is that God has an extraordinarily patient and gracious way of working through pain and suffering to bring about significant blessing. A friend of mine who suffered a a catastrophic loss 23 years ago told me a couple weeks ago that the soul's capacity for mourning enlarges the capacity for joy. They are not mutually exclusive. And in essence, that's what the book of Ruth is all about. It's about, as as one writer says, what life with God is like in the shadows, in the left turns, in the detours. It's a book for people who wonder where God is when there are no visions, no dreams, no prophets, no miracles. It's a book for people who wonder where God is when tragedy after tragedy attacks their faith. It's a book for people who wonder how God could use their ordinary lives of faith to do something good or even something great. And it's a book of hope. So where is God in this story of tragedy, darkness, and despair? Well, God is in the life and heart of this woman named Ruth. And this is what happens. 
chapter 1, verse 1, Naomi hears that the famine has ended in Israel. The Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So she decides to go back to Bethlehem and tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their families, to find new husbands, to begin a new life. But Orpah and Ruth insist that they're going to go with Naomi. And then Naomi responds. She says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters, she says. Naomi's speaking out of her grief and her pain. She's feeling this bitter slap of tragedy, but she raises really a pretty good argument. She's saying, you suffered enough by being a part of my family. Don't put yourself through anymore. With me, it's hopeless. No good can come from following me back to Judah. Can't you see that God is against me? At this point, Naomi cannot see God working in her life. She's... She's blind to the pool of water that is masquerading as a desert wasteland of hopelessness. And as far as Orpah is concerned, Naomi's bitter speech convinces her that she returns to her family. Ruth, on the other hand, is not swayed. And she responds, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. Wow. Ruth declares her undying devotion to her mother-in-law. She says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you've suffered. It doesn't matter how much more you might suffer. It doesn't matter if I suffer. My place is next to you. I will be with you until death prevents me from being with you no more. I am going with you. Now, what in the world did Ruth see in Naomi? Maybe it was about how she cared about her family. Maybe it was her her integrity, her character, her love. Maybe it was her faith. Whatever it was, Ruth saw it and she thought, you know, if Naomi is like this, I think I like her people. And I like her, God. Something about Naomi, even on her worst day, was attractive to Ruth. And don't forget that Ruth was a Moabite. For her to go back with Naomi to Judah would put her own life at risk. She was heading into hostile territory. She would be a foreigner living in a strange land among strange people. But it didn't matter because for Ruth, this ordinary Moabite woman... Her loyalty and commitment to Naomi was her top priority. And it's through this loyalty that God would end up doing extraordinary things through her. Chapter 1 ends with this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now what a contrast to how this all began. In verse 1, the people of Israel were living in an evil, desperate, and bleak time with this famine upon them. But in the closing verse, there's a whole different picture here. A picture of, of hope and harvest. What's more, in these two widows who have lost everything, there's a sense that something is going to happen. Can you feel it? Something good. There's a sense that that God is at work. 
and all the pain, all the tragedy that have crushed their lives is going to be transformed. Now, in the remaining three chapters, which you're going to have to read on your own, we see that God is close by. God's presence is demonstrated in the loyal heart of Ruth, this ordinary Moabite woman. God's presence is in the generosity of a kinsman redeemer by the name of Boaz, who is so impressed with the kindness of Ruth that he marries her. God is present in the hope of a child named Obed, who is born to Ruth, the grandson of Naomi, who would become the grandfather of David, the greatest king that Israel ever saw, and who was also an ancestor of Jesus, the Redeemer of the world. Where is God? God is in the ordinary, even painful moments of our lives, working in extraordinary ways that sometimes we can't see, but later bear good fruit in very real ways, through very precious relationships. They're so important to us. Through random acts of generosity, and the kindness of strangers through faith that moves mountains and fills dry pools up with water. God was with Naomi. God was with Ruth. And as ordinary as you and I may be, and as tragic as our lives can feel some days, God is with us. The truth is, Ruth and Naomi aren't the main characters of this beautiful story. You know who is? God is. Just as Naomi returned home to her people when she had no other place to go, God invites us home when we face brokenness and pain. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Just as Ruth remained loyal to her, to her mother-in-law, even in their despair, and was drawn to Naomi's people and to her God, so too does God ask us to trust Him. That He will provide for us, that He will protect us. God still redeems His people. God still provides pools of water in the desert. I believe it. And Jesus is the rock that we can build our lives on. In a couple of weeks at the gathering, we're going to be looking at these two verses in Matthew 7, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Let's pray.
God, thank you for the story of Ruth. Story of of hope. A story that reminds us that you are always present. Always present. Always at work. Doing good things and great things in the world around us. Sometimes even through us, in spite of ourselves. Forgive us for when we are blind. Forgive us when we look the other way. Help us to be encouraged to turn to you, to go home, back home, to your family, to your arms, to your love and your grace, which is greater than anything that we can be confronted by or experience in our lives. So thank you. Thank you, God. And now as we prepare to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, we remember the greatest thing that you did for us when you sent your son Jesus, ancestor of Obed, son of Ruth and Boaz. You sent your son to die for us so that we could live both now in your kingdom and forever. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we remember what Jesus did on that night before he died. He was with his friends celebrating that last supper. And he took the bread that was the Passover bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. And every time you eat this, every time you come together to celebrate this Passover meal, remember me. Remember what I've done for you. And after they'd eaten, he took the cup, the cup of blessing at the table. And and he said, this cup is my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you drink from this cup, remember me. So here we are today, and we are invited by Jesus himself to remember what it is that he has done for us. His death, his resurrection, give us hope and give us confidence to live and walk through any day, no matter what that day is. It doesn't take sadness, it doesn't take pain, it doesn't take grief away. But it gives us a rock that we can stand on. Something that's firm. A foundation that we can trust. And that foundation is God's love. So we remember this morning. And we also celebrate what it is that God did for us. So the ushers are going to come forward here in a second. After I pray. And... We celebrate open communion. What that means is that you don't need to be a member of Orchard Hill Church to take communion with us. We just ask that you, in confidence, can say that you're a follower of Jesus. Not perfectly, because I'm sure not. But that that is a goal that you have in your life. 
to follow Jesus. And parents, um, can kids take communion? Well, that's a decision you make. Um, We ask that if kids do take communion, that they have an age-appropriate understanding of what it is that we're celebrating here today. We'll take the bread first. Hold on to it as long as you want. The band will lead us in some worship in a little while. Pass the cup after the bread has been passed. Feel free to take either of those whenever you're ready. There's gluten-free bread in the back. So let's pray. God, again, thank you for what it is that we are about to celebrate. God, thank you that you call us, you invite us into your family. And when we stray away, you invite us back. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to live for us, to die for us, to live again and conquer death so that we know that we can live now and we'll live forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.